Welcome to Coming Clean, the podcast dedicated to common sense environmental dialogue, environmental optimism, and real environmental solutions. This show is proudly powered by Orsted. Alrighty, folks, welcome back to another episode of Coming Clean, but we don't have our regular podcast yet. We have the issues of the day with our friend Lucy Biggers. It is so great to have Lucy back on the show because we've got a lot to talk about in a short amount of time with some huge happenings last week uh, around climate and the environment that I'm sure you all have either heard of or heard about a little bit. And we're going to dive into both the Willow Project and something that happened overseas that you may or may not have, have heard of uh and we've got lucy biggers back on the show welcome back hey yeah thanks for having me i I love talking all things climate and news so this is going to be a good episode yeah and that it's not every week that multiple i mean there's more that we could even talk about but it's not every week that multiple big things happen in the climate environmental space that most people hear about but one of those things that happened last week was the willow project an oil and gas exploration and drilling project in alaska was approved by the biden administration Uh, early last week, much to the chagrin of a lot of environmental activists. And probably a few years ago, you and I would have thought, you know, this is blasphemy. You know, we have to stop this. And while for the sake of the climate, it's not like the best news in the world, there are some important realities that I think people haven't thought about, which is that, you know, when you turn on your lights, when when you power your homes, you're using a lot of energy. The whole world is using a lot of energy right now. And right now, oil and gas is the way that we're meeting those energy needs. That doesn't mean it always has to be that way. But with those realities in mind, you need to be able to continue producing energy in the way that people are able to to use it in a reliable mm-hmm. and affordable way. And so the, to, to me, the decision didn't come down to Biden being pro or anti-environment. It came down to him making a, nece- a necessary choice right. of do I provide low cost energy for people to be able to live their lives and and continue having Americans be able to to have that? Or do I push that can down the road and potentially, probably largely would rely on other countries to right. produce that energy instead of us? What, what was your take on that? Yeah, I think I'm actually happy with the decision to go forward with this because I think it shows that Biden is thinking about ruling as commander in chief and the needs for everyday Americans and not just ruling like as sort of more of like an activist, environmental activist president. Um, He definitely went against some of his promises that he made when he first went to office. I think he said no new drilling uh, when he started, which, okay, like that is just pandering to his very Mm -hmm. more left base. But like, I agree with you, like a few years ago, I would have probably been like pulling my hair out of this. I probably would have spiraled into some like climate anxiety, depression, but like I'm in my thirties now. I'm a mom, I'm a homeowner. And I get it now. (laughs) I get that, like, you know, as much as we need to address climate change, we need to be transitioning to uh, cleaner uh, ways to produce our energy and lower emissions. We can't let our our attempt to achieve that make life actually worse. Like, Mm -hmm. there's this balance between we're trying to not have our future be very negative because of the impacts of climate change, but then you're going to make the present even worse because you're trying to, uh, you know, prevent some thing that's going to happen in the future. And so I think, again, this is where the rubber hits the road. Like we need affordable, uh, reliable and plentiful 
oil and gas. And that's how we get our energy at this point. And like you said, if we didn't do it, we'd be offsetting it to some other country who knows what their environmental regulations are. And unfortunately, like this is what it means to live on a planet where there are resources that we need for our civilization to survive. Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, if I could have a magic wand and we didn't need that, then that would be great. But we have to live in reality. And the reality is, like you said, this is how we get our energy right now. I will say they did some positive things. I, I took some notes. They did what? So it was supposed to be like five um, different areas that were going to be getting the oil out of the ground. Oh, sorry. So they were supposed to have five drilling sites. They're doing three mm. and they're doing 40% less acreage. And I watched a Deb Holland the secretary of interior, Deb Holland, talk about this on, you know, her Twitter. And basically they talked about why it was a necessary evil. So, well, I think that's, that's unfortunately when you're, when you're extracting resources to survive, there's always going to be a necessary evil. There's always a trade-off. There's trade-offs to solar and wind. There's trade-offs to nuclear. There's trade-off to trade-offs to literally everything. And what you have to weigh are the trade-offs with mm -hmm. the cost and the impact on people's lives. And, Unfortunately, you know, again, maybe this isn't the case long term, but unfortunately, in the short term, you know, we have to be able to. Well, I don't, I wouldn't say it's unfortunate, but unfortunate for the planet long term, it's unfortunate that we have to have short term energy right. that maybe isn't as clean as we'd like. But really, at the end of the day, I feel like there's just a, a lack of understanding that this is a human and environmental issue that if it's mm -hmm. if the environmental solution isn't good for humanity like raising energy prices or having more unreliable power which is what would have happened if you would replace oil and gas too quickly if you don't include the humanity part of the environmental conversation it will never happen because yeah. even a democrat president will choose to err on the side of human survival i hope over, so <laughs> yeah and you would hope so so i guess you know if you were a young activist that was really frustrated by this and might think that this is like a huge step back. Would you see, would you see this as a huge step back or is it more like we've been taking a lot of steps forward and this is just one of those necessary temporary step backs, like a two step forward, one step back thing. Right. I feel like if I was still on my sort of black and white thinking as an activist, I would be so upset right now. I'd probably be posting memes about, you know, short term. Like what was that? There's that meme that's like, well, it's like a barren planet. And it's like, but it, for a while there, our stock prices were through the roof or something like I'm mm -hmm. like butchering it. But basically like, I think my mindset would have been like, wow, we're just like, you know, abusing the earth for like short term, like, gains. But then now I understand, like you said, the humanity aspect of it, where it's like, we need energy to have a functioning civilization. You need affordable energy to have a functioning civilization. And by the way, when energy goes through the roof and we don't have it because, you know, foreign powers who don't like us are controlling it, like that's going to be probably a worse situation than your climate nightmare that you're thinking of that could happen right. in 15 years, depending on what, you know, climate models you look at. So like, we have a civilization. It's got to keep running. And the thing that keeps it running is affordable and bountiful um, energy. In and society. Like, yeah. And like, I'm like, I'm so pro domestic oil drilling now. I can't like, I like, who am I? Yeah. Like, I like protested standing rock very passionately. But like, now I get that, like the, the power of domestic oil production is so important. And I remember mm -hmm. like when president Obama was president and he increased domestic oil production so much and everyone sort of, was pissed and like that was actually him being a good leader and knowing like the foundations of like, what's this functioning society it's like bread and energy and like water 
And I hate to say it, but I think President Bernie Sanders would have been forced to make the same decision. It has nothing to do with who they are or how weak or strong they are. When the country has energy needs and they have to meet them in the United States, you know, we're going to meet those needs. And the other, the only country, all every country does that. And the only country that really didn't do that was Germany and it didn't work out very well for them. Yeah, they're struggling. but almost every other country, no matter how liberal or conservative they are, are making these same decisions. And I think to your point, it's it's the only thing that should be uncovered from this is not, oh, there's some agenda to you know kill the earth. It's like the agenda here is that we don't have the solutions yet to replace oil and gas at the scale that we need. So if if you're frustrated by it, then put your attention towards, in my opinion, put your attention towards finding those solutions and and finding ways to decrease the costs mm-hmm. of other energy sources looking at the new technology become a nuclear physicist <laughs> exactly become like like we need more good ideas to get yeah. it, to, to get these other energy sources to the place of of oil and gas and that will take time it's not going to happen overnight and it's going to take a lot of individuals a lot of good ideas and it's not going to happen overnight speaking of europe yeah, uh, you flagged for me, and my dad had actually sent me the same uh, story uh, on the same that. day last week. Uh, so <laughs> you guys are on the same wavelength. Uh, the same, yeah. No, uh, like as boomers, I'm a boomer. Um, no, oh. okay. So <laughs> no, your dad. People have been saying dads. that. People have been saying that about you for a while. Now tell us, tell us I'm what this, like, what happened last week. Wait, I was gonna say if you follow my Instagram, and I'll like go on these rants now where I'm like changing all my opinions. <laughs> I had a baby last year. So someone goes, wow, does having a baby change your brain chemistry? Like you're so different. It's like, it was like you're pro plastic and like pro oil. Now I was like, Oh God. (laughs) You're like, maybe, I don't know. I was like, I mean, it probably does. There's definitely studies. Okay. So this is so interesting. And I've been following this for a while. So there's been a big push in the Netherlands to prevent their farmers from releasing nitrogen um, and polluting nitrogen. And so nitrogen comes in the form of animal manure and fertilizer, chemical fertilizer. And basically the Netherlands has really high like rates of fertilizer per like square acre or whatever compared to other parts of Europe. So like it definitely is an issue. Um, but they also produce, they're a really big producer in agricultural country. So, and, and they have these farms, you know, that go back hundreds of years in the same, same family. And so basically the government of the Netherlands trying to get in line with their climate goals, pass these laws to basically cut down on nitrogen pollution. And in, and in the process of doing that, the farmer, some farmers were going to basically get bought out of their land and get taken off their, like basically ancestral farmland or have to like give up half of the amount of cattle that they produced or whatever. So there was been protests happening since 2019. Um, The farmers have driven into the cities. They've like put manure in the ground. They've burned things. Like it kind of reminds me of like, if you follow the trucker uh, protests Mm. that happened in Canada, like it's sort of that same energy. And like, I feel like mainstream media on, uh, if you are more on the left, kind of dismiss them as like, those crazy, like fascist farmers. Like they wouldn't really get, tell you what was happening. Um, Anyway, so this is there's been a huge grassroots movement, and now these farmers just uh, won 15 seats in the Netherlands Dutch, you know, national parliament. Wow. So they are now the largest represented party um, in the country. Their party name, let me see if I can find it here. I should know it, but now it's not in my notes. But it's it's called um, something like oh oh here we go. 
their party name is the farmer citizen movement. Um, and it's really cool. I love this. And, um, yeah, it's so anyway, this goes back to this intersection between sort of the like UN, like people living in the cities, making a rule, being like, well, that nitrogen, that pesky nitrogen, we should make some rules. And then it like really impacts someone's real life and livelihood. And these are people who have like, again, been on this land for hundreds of years. This is their way of life. It's really, really sad. Um, and so I'm actually really proud of these farmers that they've taken back their power. They're now going to be represented in, in Congress or in their parliament there. Um, and again, when you're talking about unintended consequences, what I don't get with this is like, so you're going to prevent, you know, livestock from being grown in the Netherlands. And where is that livestock going to then whatever grown or raised? The demand does not change. The demand's not going under. So you're, what you're going to be importing Brazilian livestock. And by the way, that's way worse. That's you're Cutting that's talking about like deforestation in a like right. freaking jungle versus the Dutch have been raising cattle for millennia. They like invented it. Have you ever seen like a Dutch like milkmaid with like cheese? They're like cheese is their national like symbol. Never <laughs> like, met one, but I've, I've yeah, I've heard, I've heard stories. I've been abroad in Amsterdam actually. So you have seen them. So I know But it I well. think I think the whole I think you're you're making a really good point, which is almost on the same point as the Willow Project, which is again that it, like the solutions to protecting the environment can't be against the humans that we are surrounded right. by because. And it's even worse with farmers because the farmers are the reason that the people in those cities who don't want have food, yeah, have, they have food, and and so you have to find solutions that work for them. And it, and it, it's worse. I would argue, argue even like with the Willow Project, like there's an argument to be made that like basically land that's untouched is now going to have to be like used right. for that, production. That is like, the biggest negative in my opinion. Yeah, that's the biggest negative. And like there's a very valid argument that I could be like, yeah, that's very valid, and it's the trade offs of like you're hurting this land here to get value, but this is land that's already being used and producing food for a country, and and providing jobs and local communities and all of that jazz, and so. It's just, I think it's wrong on so many levels. And it's sort of a microcosm of this tension between sort of the UN. When I, this is when I start to sound like a conspiracy theorist, but which I'm not, but like, I totally get it. Like the sort of UN World Economic Forum, like kind right. of like flighty, like it can come global across emissions that way. Yeah. versus like the man on the way. ground who's like, I'm raising a cow that like I get milk from and then I bring it to a store and you drink it. Like that's very grounded versus very like ungrounded. And they're meeting, and I'm glad that the people who are on the ground are fighting back. But it's also like CNN did an article that was like the farmers party that was backed by Le Pen and Trump like gained seats. And you're like, okay, well, what are you implying by just like putting Trump in the headline? You're basically saying that these people are far right. Right. And they're just farmers that are needing to provide the resources that we all use day to day. And regardless of who the national party leadership had, the, these issues are still real. And I think that's actually where, you know, in America, our politics is so wrong too. You know, just because, you know, someone supports Bernie or someone supports Trump or whatever, doesn't mean that there aren't valid concerns within their, you know, belief system. And for a lot right. of Trump voters, there are some really important concerns that call them to or make them feel like they need to support trump just like there's some very valid concerns why someone would support bernie yeah. and without addressing those concerns you're going to have a huge pushback like you saw by the by these farmers and rightfully so i mean if they would have engaged them on the solutions early on i can guarantee you that this wouldn't have happened and that and they're, they're being like targeted where it's like there's a whole other argument we could get into about farm well i don't know this is like this could be a five hour podcast about this, but like 
even the idea of like animal manure and it's like nitrogen, it's actually still part of a human system or like a living system because the animals are alive and then they're pooping basically Mm -hmm. versus like fossil fuel use is coming. You're digging up ancient carbon and putting it into the atmosphere. And so that's really what leads to, uh, you know, climate change as we know it. And so I also think there's an argument to me, like, why are you even targeting these Well, they've got, they've got the power back and that's really what matters. And I think, you know, the, the, the moral of the story here is work with the communities that you want to reduce the impact from, you know, you, and if you don't, you're going to get pushed back and you might get a worse, you know, answer than you want it. Then, then the norm in the first place, like this is, this is quote unquote worse for the people who propose these policies uh, than it would have been if they actually tried to work with the farmers in the first place. And, and I think that that should be the moral story here in the United States too, is you've just got, you've got to do that engagement. You've got to find solutions that work for both the environmental community and the communities that are, you know, causing environmental impact, especially the ones that we rely on for our daily survival. Lucy, we are out of time and we've got an amazing podcast coming up with Congresswoman Morris Rogers, but we're going to have you back on because these seem, these things keep seeming to pop up all over uh, really a lot these days. There's a lot of kind of current climate and environmental news stories that people are getting upset about or excited about and excited to bring you on for the next set. Hopefully Perfect. Next week. I know. I, I love talking about this stuff. Thanks for having me on. Of course. Benji Backer here with sitting in person, one of my favorite people in the world, one of the most powerful people in Congress right now, Chairwoman Kathleen Morris Rogers. We just had a great day in her district touring some of the really amazing environmental and energy projects that are happening in in eastern Washington. I'd love for you to start out by telling us a little bit about why eastern Washington is kind of leading the way in a lot of these areas and also a little bit about your new position in Congress. Well, thank you. Thank you, Benji. It's great to be with you and great to have you in Eastern Washington on the ground, seeing where Eastern Washington is leading the way in so many of the the clean energy solutions uh, that we we want. Uh, We want to move forward nationally and and all around the world. Um, So uh, as far as being the, the new chair of energy and commerce, it's just a great, great position. I'm excited to be leading on the energy and commerce committee in the house. Uh, I believe that good energy energy policy is good climate policy, and America has been leading in new technologies, new innovations that are uh, continuing to ensure that we have the energy that we need to meet our needs. That we are, um, I believe, it's important that we're energy independent and that we can we have reliable, affordable energy, uh, but also leading the way in bringing down carbon emissions and clean energy solutions across the board. And, and to be uh, the chairman of this committee right now uh, is, is uh, exciting to be able to set the agenda to, to move legislation through the committee that is going to lead us in I, unleashing American energy, this new technology, this new innovation, bringing down the cost while also securing supply chains, which it's all really important to, to us and also to our allies and partners around the world. Well, you're the first woman to chair this committee, and that's historic. But one of the other things that's really historic is that you're a Republican 
member of Congress who's leading on the topics of, of environment and climate. Now, I say historic because most people wouldn't know that that's possible. Uh, can you talk a little bit about why you feel like the environmental and climate agenda and energy agenda of Republicans could actually serve our environment better than the approach of you know, your, your, your peers on the other side that have dominated this conversation for so long? Because uh, I, I have a lot of confidence in what we're putting forward, what the Republicans are putting forward are, are solutions that are actually going to get results. And uh, so often on the left, we'll hear, you will hear rhetoric around a potential issue and uh, whether it's, uh, yes, uh, the Green New Deal or uh, some of the, the environmental policies that are being promoted, but they're not the ones that are going to get results. Mm. Um, so tell us a little bit about like the results that you're hoping to achieve, and what are some of the policy areas that you're looking at right now? Well, we are. Uh, I'm excited to lead on in in Washington State. We are largely hydropower, mm-hmm. so we have 70 percent of our electricity coming from hydropower. Uh, and I have long been leading on expanding hydropower, uh, licensing reform, permitting reform that will ensure that we can actually have more hydroelectric projects, not just in Washington State but in the country. And yep. we uh, we could double hydroelectricity. The, the largest renewable in mm-hmm. America without building a new dam simply by investing in the technology. Only 3% of the dams currently, current infrastructure on the ground, produce hydroelectricity. And, and so it's, it's, uh, it's one area. Uh, nuclear, advanced mm-hmm. nuclear reactors, the small nuclear reactors. Uh, we're going to be, we're going to have some hearings around uh, permitting as well as access to the enriched uranium that we need to to run these small nuclear reactors. Uh, again, Washington State has been leading. Uh, we have a couple of companies that are leading on the research, uh, cutting edge, next generation nuclear reactors. Uh, the two big issues that have to be addressed is around safety and, and also the, uh, the waste. And the research now is underway to be able to use the spent fuel, which is really exciting. Mm. Um, but across the board, I, you know, I want us to be leading on, on permitting reforms that are important for wind and solar projects. Uh, oil and gas, uh, carbon sequestration and carbon capture, uh, more, um, I believe pipelines are important. They're the safest way to get product around. So uh, we're going, we're really embracing an all of the above approach to energy, but embracing new innovation and technologies in every, every uh, aspect of energy generation so that we're doing it better and cleaner and uh, not just to meet our own energy needs, but also to lead the way around the world where we are achieving our goals of bringing down carbon emissions and ultimately leading to a clean energy future. Yeah, what I really like about the agenda that you guys have have put out there is that it's not trying to pick winners and losers before we know what works best. It's saying, we are using all these different energy sources. How do we reduce the impact of of all of those energy sources? And how can we improve the technology within all those energy sources? And then the winners and losers will will come out. You know, like nuclear's technology could make that, that the cheapest. Or maybe battery storage helps wind and solar become the cheapest. Or maybe carbon capture is the cheapest way to reduce emissions and oil and gas can continue uh, with 
with a large impact on our energy source usage because we can capture that carbon. So you're not saying that we have all of it figured out yet. You're saying, how do we move forward with the current realities we have now to a brighter future and not hold anything off from being pursued? And I think that that agenda is the innovative agenda that we need. Not only are you doing that, but you're also working on what you said, which is permitting reform. Even Biden's, President Biden's uh, economists and, and analysts have said that almost all of the emissions that they claim will be reduced in the Inflation Reduction Act will not be possible without permitting reform. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about why that's been such a priority? And if you are hearing about permitting for the first time, can you help define what that is for people? Well, maybe I'll start by defining uh, the issue of permitting and the importance of addressing and uh, permitting and the um, the permitting reforms that we're advancing as Congress. Um, permitting uh, is probably the number one barrier to to doing anything right now. So whether it's a solar farm that you want to site, it's taking three, five years to, to work through the permitting process. Um, and time not only means that projects are delayed, but it also adds costs in to yeah. any project. Well, we see it with transmission lines. Uh, a lot of focus um, on trying to get the, the wind and, and solar projects in the Midwest or in the, the, right. the, in the middle of the country to the East and West Coast. Transmission reform or uh, transmission uh, permitting reform is necessary then because siting a transmission line can be very controversial, time intensive. But it goes, hydroelectric projects take on average 10 years to relicense. Anything that involves federal funding because of the because of the requirements that we put in place, it's taking mm. uh, a long time. And 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 when we are when we're talking about wanting to address permitting reform, we're not talking about reducing environmental standards. Mm. Uh, we want to maintain clean air, clean water, uh, soil. That is where these are. We have the highest environmental standards of any place in the world. Right, and you want to keep those. We want to keep those. We want to maintain the environmental standards, but a lot of times it's red red tape. It's uh, duplicate agencies. It hurts the environment. And it hurts the environment, yes, because these projects are delayed. Costs are added then to, to building or developing any project, no matter what kind of an energy project it may be. And all that means that it raises the cost of uh, everything in the United States of America. Well, that's right. And, and I think people, it, it seems backwards that you know accelerating these projects could have a pro-environmental impact when you just think about it because we've, we've been trained to think they need to have all these extensive background checks and we have to have all these regulations and all these standards. But we've over-regulated and we've over-standardized these things where it takes decades uh, sometimes to prove these projects. At the very least, it takes a few years and sometimes you know, in between. And the technology that's then changed and everything, the whole landscape has changed by the time that project even gets approved. And so that's one of the biggest issues within the climate space right now, and it shouldn't be undervalued how much you're working on that. 
Well, and even even as simple as involving stakeholders mm. earlier on in the process, uh, when there's a new project, getting those stakeholders involved at the very beginning when you're putting when you're working through the environmental impact statement and and looking at all the different options that you want to take into consideration. Right now, that doesn't happen until. Right. The end, after the EIS is completed, and then stakeholders and concerned parties can issue their, their, their concerns or pick whatever they think is the best option, or they can take it to court, mm. and they can tie it up in litigation for years. I believe, and that's as simple as that is, involving the interested parties, the stakeholders earlier on in the process, I know that we'll get better outcomes it will, and we'll be able to address the concerns earlier on while maintaining our high environmental standards and, and actually being able to, to build a, a solar farm or a, um, a new transmission line, whatever it might be. Well, uh, yeah, exactly. And, and, and switching gears for a second, I think people on the right are oftentimes skeptical of Republicans engaging on this issue, and people on the left are oftentimes skeptical of Republicans engaging on this issue. If you were able to speak broadly to the right and the left, which will have a different answer, what what would you – what would you say about why they should trust the Republican leadership on this? The Republicans, the Republican leadership is committed to ensuring that we have reliable, affordable, clean energy in the United States of America. I am proud that America has led in innovation and technology. That is, that's been the superpower of mm-hmm. of America. Is that we we are a very creative people. We, we celebrate the ingenuity, the creativity of the American people. And I have the opportunity to, to meet people, uh, visit projects, visit companies that are embarking upon some really exciting ideas around uh, how they think that we can continue to improve our environment and uh, bring down our carbon emissions. And yet, so often they just feel like the, the government at all levels is more of a barrier, mm-hmm. you know, rather than... Rather than coming along and saying, "Okay, let's uh, let's un- work in partnership," yeah, let's work in partnership, right? You know, so you know, it, it, during COVID, there's a company out here in my district. Uh, during COVID, they they went to work on how to car- uh, capture carbon uh, from natural gas uh, heating systems in commercial buildings. And I was like, "Wow!" You know, so these guys are home. And they're like, okay, let's let's figure this out. And they figured it out. And now they they have they are they are deploying this technology in New York City. Wow! Right? They have contracts, and they're they're capturing it. And then they're actually being able they they have another contract where they're in, putting it into the asphalt on on the pavement. And, and I just think that is American ingenuity. And there's so many of those stories repeated over and over where people have ideas, but yet because of because of the regulatory climate, the red tape, the permitting that can take so long, a lot of times they're not able to move forward. Well, and I think what what I'm hearing is that you know the the Republican approach to this is about American ingenuity. It's about innovation. It's about knowing that we have challenges around the environment and energy and climate, but that we have the capacity to solve them, but that we also don't have all the answers in our tool belt. We don't have all the tools in our tool belt yet. And the the last thing that the government should be doing mm-hmm. is prohibiting those tools from being developed. And right now that's happening a lot. One of the areas that the Republicans have prioritized uh, just in the last couple of weeks is releasing HR1, which mm-hmm. has a big focus on permitting. Can you talk a little bit about what's included in that? 
Right. Well, HR one is I. It's like a down payment on what the Republicans want to do around energy, and this is one part of unleashing American energy. It and permitting reform is so important to any of the, any energy projects as we've been talking about, and so um, th- there's a major focus in HR one around permitting reform. It also gets into uh, the the permitting around natural gas pipelines, the exporting of natural gas. You know, natural gas has been this bridge to a clean energy future, and it's really because of the. Uh, shell revolution in the United States of America where we've been able to access more natural gas that's really been the driver of bringing down carbon emissions in our nation it's one of the best things that we could do actually to help our allies and partners around the right. world is, a, is to unleash uh, to export LNG and so we also include um, provisions in this to uh, export LNG um, but this is this is HR1 it's a it's a it's a start. It's, it's, a, it's a start, and then we're going to start moving on other aspects of our energy climate uh, agenda that we want to uh, move forward, so that America can, uh, so that we're um, bringing down uh, the cost of energy and becoming energy independent. Yeah, and I think that 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 combination of bringing down the cost of energy and reducing carbon emissions have to go hand in hand. We can't raise energy prices at the cost of or we can't cut carbon emissions at the cost of raising energy prices because you can't put the economics and the environment at odds. People have to be able to afford to live their lives and also protect the environment at the same time, and that's something that your agenda has really had a focal point on. One of the areas... Yeah, go ahead. Well, and I might just mention also on HR1, uh, we're getting... When we think about permitting another area that we, uh, the Republicans believe we need to address is around mining mm. of, 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 of critical minerals. When you, when you look at a lot of the, the wind and solar and uh, electric vehicles, there's a huge need for metals. Mm. And w- right now we ha- are dependent upon a lot of other countries around the world for getting the, the metals that we need. We have uh, we have natural resources in America, but yet there's been um, a lot of mines that have been shut down in recent years because, not because um, the mining company companies didn't, you know, um, do their due they, diligence. Yeah, it would do their due diligence. It was just that it was becoming cost prohibitive, and mm-hmm. it was easier to go to another country. Uh, and we hear about Congo, slave where, labor, yeah, and, and slave labor, or kids that are mining in other countries. Where now we're getting our our minerals, you know, um, copper in in Congo, where they have ten you know, year olds out there mining, uh, which is completely un-American or China that has locked up a lot of minerals around the world and they they use Uyghur slave labor. Um, so we, I, I believe that we need to address, again, permitting so that we can actually mine with some, the highest environmental standards. Right. Protect um, our, our water, yep. our air, but make sure that we aren't promoting slave labor or other environmental uh, de- de- um, disasters in other countries. Well, and I think we basically have two paths on this, and I hate to make it that black and white, but on mining we do. We can keep going the way we have been going, which is 
having China and other kind of disastrous nations in the way that they're handling this continue this process of mining and with horrible human rights standards, with uh, with coal powering the mining that they're doing in these countries, which has a huge emissions profile that when you actually carry an electric vehicle off the lot, it already has emitted a ton of carbon before it even gets driven because it was the battery and everything made with it was made by coal powered plants. Or we can move that to the United States where we have high environmental standards. We can build great high paying jobs and we can do things in a really economically and environmentally safe way. But we also have to, I think there's a lot of Americans that don't understand the realities behind where their minerals are coming from, that these phones and solar panels and batteries don't just show up out of nowhere, uh, that, that, that we're using really poor standards environmentally and, and human rights wise. So on that, the energy secretary Granholm recently, uh, Biden's secretary of energy Granholm just recently talked about how she was really impressed by the way that China was doing things on the environment and energy. Can you respond to that? I have probably fairly similar <laughs> sentiments, but uh, would love for you to talk through why that is yeah. so wrong. Well, I was I was pretty outraged yeah. uh, by the statement, and uh, the members of the committee also were yeah. uh, just completely. Uh, outraged that our Secretary of Energy would somehow be lauding China's practices. Uh, China, China has uh, is continuing to build coal fire plants, continuing to increase its carbon emissions uh, pretty dramatically. And in addition to that, China does not have the human rights or the environmental standards that we have in the United States of America. And to somehow laud China, it just made no sense to me. Um, we are. Uh, that is not the future that I want for the United States of America. And uh, as the Energy Secretary, I would, I would, I, I believe that she needs to be uh, making, you know, she needs to be the champion for right. the high labor standards, the high environmental standards that we enjoy in this country, as well as the the the. The ingenuity, the innovation, the new technology that we have been developing here, uh, China absolutely wants to control the metals and minerals. Uh, they, they see a future, um, yeah. they see one future, it's a very command and control type of future where they, um, they do not respect the individual and, and I don't believe that they, their environmental record is, you know, that their environmental record is what we're trying to move away from. That's right. And I mean, they're, you, you believe what people do when they do it, and they have not been acting in an environmentally friendly way really since we've been able to track these sorts of things. I mean, they, their emissions are going up substantially. And she was lauding something that I think people need to understand, which is that China is building a lot of nuclear, a lot of wind, and a lot of solar. It's also building a lot of coal and a lot of oil and a lot of gas. Why they're doing that isn't because they care about the climate. It's you know, obviously they're building all of the different energy sources. They're doing it because they know that they want to corner the market on every energy source and have control over every energy source so that whichever one ends up being the biggest, you know, part of our future, they have the biggest control on. That's why they're doing it. They don't care about the climate side of things. And so while they're building everything that they can to take control over the market, we're spending 10 years in a permitting process not allowing a single nuclear plant to get built because of that uh, that that process. So 
we're not only losing economically, but we're losing environmentally. And the Chinese government is able to use this as a geo geopolitical advantage while their emissions are going up, while our emissions are going down, while I believe our global emissions have to keep going down. China is the biggest opposition to that. And by you know, I don't know if Secretary Granholm knows better. I would hope she does. But, you know, this statement was so kind of out of left field to just pretend that they're doing all these climate things and then ignore all the anti-climate things that far overshadow it just seems either really in- ignorant at best and incredibly uh, a deceitful lie <laughs> at worst. And I'm not really sure which one it is, but neither one of them is good. I know we're running short on time. I guess my last question to you would be this. Young people are wanting action on this issue. Mm -hmm. They don't trust the Democratic Party because they haven't taken steps in the right direction. It's been a lot of talk, a lot of noise, but not a lot of action. They also haven't heard an agenda from Republicans. If you had a room full of young people, which I know you do all the time, Mm -hmm. to tell why this approach that you're taking in this Congress and beyond is the best approach and what young people should be hopeful about within this topic, what would you tell Mm -hmm. them? Well, I would encourage them to engage um, because, yes, we hear a lot of talk and rhetoric on the left. Where we really need to get is to results. How are we actually going to solve the the, the, the challenges around global climate change and uh, the, the need to bring down carbon emissions while also meeting our energy needs mm-hmm. and making sure that we have reliable, affordable energy. So I would encourage them to engage. There's a lot of ideas out there. And, and having the, the government decide you know, which projects are going to get funded or you know, what they think is best, I don't believe is going to, is going to in the end, win the day. Mm-hmm. The American way has always been one where we've led by unleashing American ingenuity, creativity, technology, and that's where uh, we want. We, and, and, it's a problem solver's you know, mindset. Well, and it is, and it's not a it's not a one size fits mm. all approach to it. It is actually embracing the the many ideas that the American people have, like whether it's the natural gas, you know, commercial building solution, or many other solutions around uh, um, the vehicles of the future. They may be, yeah. They, some may be electric vehicles, but I think we should be technology neutral. Let's look at hydrogen fuel cells. Let's go, look at the hybrids. Let's let's uh, keep looking at what's going to make All sense. Options. Yeah, the nuclear, the uh, the yes, wind and solar. Uh, Everything. Truly. Um, Let's, uh, let's imagine what's possible in all of this, and then we'll, we're going to work hard to solve it. But make sure that we stay focused on results. And, and there's a lot of hope that I, I have in the American people uh, and the innovators that have, you know, America has led the world in technology and in every sector. We've done more to lift people out of poverty, raise the standard of living more than any other country in the world, and the and we and we got to keep that going. This time, making sure that we're leading in in uh, carbon uh, reduction, climate solutions that are going to ensure that we uh, have the energy that we need. Also, and if we don't do that, the the rest of the world will will be worse for it. Our our citizens will be worse for it. And we appreciate your leadership on this. Last follow up question. Sorry, mm-hmm. you said young people need to be engaged. What is the yes. best way, as a as an incredibly influential leader in D.C., if you were a young person? What would you want 
to do to really make your voice heard on this? And, and at, or if you were in your position, what would you want to hear from young people? What mediums would they take in terms of getting to you? Like, what, what is the best way to be active in this as a young person? Get involved with the ACC and <laughs> Benji Bagger. I mean, that's it. That was not teed up on purpose for that, but I love that. <laughs> that is, a, that is a, you know... You're connected with every every member of Congress, Republicans and Democrats, and I think it's just extraordinary the relationships that you built. Uh, every every congressional office, every every member of Congress wants to engage with young people, and so I have a congressional youth advisory committee, uh, and I'm and I think a lot of other members do too. Uh, engaging, uh, coming and interning in the office. Working on a campaign, there's there's a number of ways that you know, depending upon what someone wants to do, you can come to D.C. for a short amount of time or a longer period of time, or you can get involved in the advocacy. and And I think that's where getting involved with ACC is a great way to uh, yeah, engage locally as well as nationally. Love that, and I appreciate the plug. But more most importantly, I appreciate your leadership on this issue. You do not get enough credit for the amount of leadership that you've had on this, and I wish you got. More more. Hopefully this is one small piece of that and really appreciative of your friendship, but also your, your, your leadership on building a brighter future for this country, for my generation, for future generations that haven't been born yet and for the future of this planet. Uh, people will be thanking you years and years down the line. They should be thanking you now and thank you for, for joining the first ever in-person uh, Coming Clean podcast episode. Thank you, Benji. The best is yet to come. Yes, it is. And before we jump, the Coming Clean podcast is grateful to be powered by Orsted, a wonderful company strengthening America's energy security with reliable and domestic clean energy. Through its integrated renewable energy solutions, Orsted is creating American jobs, investing in American communities, and driving American innovation, all while preserving our country's natural habitats. A clean energy future truly connects us all, and Orsted is helping lead the charge. To learn more, visit us.orsted.com.